a year. And so thankful for your willingness to take the word and open it for us. Before Doug comes, I'd like uh, to read at his request. Uh, if you'll turn with me to page 701 in uh, the Bibles in front of you, we'll be looking at the first 11 verses of Ezekiel chapter 14. And I didn't realize the timing. Some of you know that I'm a pretty rabid Clemson graduate and fan, and so my idols got completely smashed last night, and I didn't know the timing of this sermon. It's just great for that. Perfect. Yeah. So to God's word, Ezekiel chapter 14. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who were all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. And I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike, that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. This is God's word, and it is good. Doug, come on up and preach to us, please. Well, I was very thankful for the opportunity when uh, Pastor Mark uh, texted me, and he had mentioned knowing that Pastor Jamie was going to be over in Nepal, that uh, be ready uh, to uh, answer a call uh, to bring a message. And when he did that, I was already planning in the back of my mind things that I'd been meditating on to uh, focus and bring to you. And it was interesting, and I've seen this over and over in years of ministry, how God just orchestrates things uh, to his glory. 
Um, the Sunday school class that I taught this morning, uh, again in place of Pastor Jamie, uh, dealt and is dealing with um, biblical counseling. And today's uh, subject was specifically on the root cause of our problems and dealing with the heart. And the main theme of that is dealing with idolatry. Now, I did not know that that was going to be the theme of that Sunday school class before I started studying for this message. And then along with what I taught uh, today, Pastor Mark brings out of the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment of you're not to murder. And so much of what he brought out literally went hand in hand with what I taught this morning in Sunday school. Uh, especially the passages in Matthew 5 and then Matthew 15 regarding where, where, again, do the problems that are manifested in society and in our own lives come from? They come from the iniquity of our heart. And so as I, as I thought about this, it's just a blessing to know that God works in mysterious ways. And when they're manifested, as we were just singing tonight, it gives us a heart of praise for our God. And so, again, I'm thankful for the opportunity to come and, and bring uh, the, the message of the Lord to you. And as Pastor Mark mentioned, as was uh, mentioned in your bulletin this morning, if you would turn in your scriptures to 1 John chapter number 5. We're going to be looking at a number of sermon texts this evening, uh, but uh, 1 John 5 verses 20 and 21 are the primary texts that we're going to be looking at in dealing with idolatry and its cure. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't bow down to idols, so this message I can tune out. Well, don't tune out. Because I'm going to be reading a statement here soon from uh, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones that deals with the reality idolatry is the greatest sin that the believer fights against. 1 John 5, verses 20 and 21, we read, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, there's a story, and I know my, my daughters and my wife have heard this many times. My wife even used it one time in a... Uh, ladies uh, Bible study that she, she uh, taught, and I didn't know this up until recently, but my oldest daughter actually uh, read this story uh, for my wife and had a very difficult time getting through it. Uh, it's one maybe that you've heard before. I don't know if it's based on a true story or if it's just something that some preacher somewhere made up to make a point. Uh, sometimes that does happen. But there, there's a story that goes where there is this young girl, I, I picture her around five or six years of age, uh, who had a wonderful relationship with her father. She would run to the door every day when she would hear his truck pull up outside and she would hear his footsteps come up the sidewalk to their door. And as he opened the door, she was always there greeting him with the biggest smile and the most joyful hug you could ever imagine from a child of her age. And day after day after day, this continued, and the father, you can understand, loved it that his daughter would show up and be the first one to greet him at the door every day. Well, one day, and as you can understand this, as parents are wont to do, he brought a gift home for her. 
had it wrapped up in a nice box with a pretty bow on it, pink paper, all that. And this little girl was just so excited to, to imagine what it was that her daddy had brought home for her. And she goes inside with the dad holding her hand, and, and uh, she puts the present on the table and rips the wrapping off and opens up that box, and inside are pop beads. Now, some of you may not know what pop beads are. They're basically cheap plastic toys that you can buy hundreds of them for like $12. I looked this up on Amazon. Uh, you can buy a packet or a kit of these where like 300 of them and you can, you can make necklaces of different styles and shapes and colors and as you can imagine, a little girl would just go crazy over something like this. And she was just so thankful. She kissed her father, tore off to her room and put together a pop bead necklace, something she'd never owned before. Well, the father again, uh, after many days, uh, came home and he one day came through the door and the daughter was still there greeting him and she had this pop bead necklace on and she told her daddy, oh daddy, I took it to school today, I showed it off to all my friends, my teacher's made of it, so on and so forth and the little girl was just showing him how excited and happy she was to have this pop bead necklace. Well, come a few weeks later, the little girl meets him at the door, and he comes in the door, and he takes her into their little, the little study that he owned where there's a fireplace, high back chair, desk, and all this, uh, as you can imagine in your mind. And he sits down, and she, he puts her on his lap, sitting there talking to her, and she's fumbling around with the little pop bead necklace. She will not take this thing off. She takes it everywhere she goes, not even when she gets a bath. And the father, after talking with her for about 10, 15 minutes, says, Honey, mate, can I have that necklace? And she takes it off, and she's about ready to put it into his hands when she says, What are you going to do with it? And he says, Well, I'm going to throw it in the fire. And she giggles, a little girl giggle, and she thinks about it, says, Are you serious? And he says, Yes, I'm serious. Not smiling the entire time at her when he's saying this. And she draws back and says, no, daddy, no. And he says, sweetheart, please give me the necklace. I'm, I'm going to destroy it. She says, no, daddy. And tears are just streaming down her eyes. And she goes running out of the room away from him. Well, the father the next day notices that his daughter does not meet him at the front door. And she is not happy to see him as she once was. She's more reticent to come when he calls her by name. And then after a time, this little girl is just so absolutely miserable because no longer does she have that sweet, precious fellowship with her father that she meets him at the door with tears in her eyes and she gives that necklace to her dad who then takes her by the hand, walks her into the study and throws that necklace into the fire. And you think, what sort of dad is this that would give a gift away to a little girl to destroy it weeks later after knowing she loved it so much? Well, as he's there holding her and the tears are just streaming down her eyes as she sees that pop bead necklace melt in that fire, he pulls out of his pocket a beautiful jewelry case. And she stops for a second. She says, Daddy, what is this? And he says, open it. And she opens it up, and it's a string of pearls. Real pearls. Not pot bead pearls. 
And she says, oh, Daddy, when, when did you get this for me? And he said, the very first day when I asked you to give me the necklace. Now, dear ones, this is a very good, simple illustration for us to understand that the little girl had a major problem that affected the relationship with her father, and that is this. That necklace had become an idol in her heart. Her happiness was contingent on the existence of that idol. And again, as she would draw back and with tears away from her father because he would deign to take that necklace away and throw it into the fire, it exposed her heart that that gift that she once praised her father for was now a gift she was unwilling to give up even for the one who gave it to her. Now, dear ones, you might think, well, what's the point of an illustration such as that? Well, it does give us a wonderful picture of the people of Israel and the greatest sin problem that they dealt with. And you might say, well, Brother Doug, how can you say that the greatest sin problem of Israel was idolatry? You read in the scriptures over and over, and even as Pastor Mark read this evening, this was the reason why the children of God went into exile in the first place. They had turned away from the living God and sought after gods that were no gods. And as John here tells us in 1 John 5 verse 21, we are a people that must guard ourselves against idolatry for we are as prone to go after that which is no God over the living God. I find it remarkable that the last statement of this first epistle of John is a simple commandment, but yet it is earth-shattering when you think about it. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You would think, a believer doesn't have to worry about this, but oh, dear ones, we know if we take just but a moment and look at our own heart and see where our desires lie, we do battle with this daily. I mentioned to the Sunday school class this morning that this world, we oftentimes as believers think of the world, and again, we do know that it is full of evil, it is full of wickedness, it is in direct opposition to God, but dear ones, there is good in this world that God has created for us to enjoy, but not to the detriment of it being above our God in our joy in Him. But oftentimes, we as believers, we look at the gift that God has given to us, no matter what that might be, whatever form it takes, and we begin to derive satisfaction and enjoyment and purpose from the gift rather than the giver of the gift. Idolatry must be guarded against in the life of the believer. Now, I'm going to be just bringing to you uh, three simple points tonight. The first of which is we look at the sin of idolatry. Again, we're given a commandment there, 1 John 5, verse 21 little children, keep yourselves from idols. Commandment. John is telling us that idols or idolatry are a sin against God that we must guard our hearts from. 
Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones defined an idol as this. It's anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that holds my life and my devotion, anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to be vital, anything that is essential to me, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that moves and rouses and attracts and stimulates me is an idol. An idol is anything that I worship, anything to which I give much of my time and attention, my energy and my money. Anything that holds a controlling position in my life is an idol. Now, I'm glad Pastor Mark was, was uh, somewhat transparent about the, the idol of Clemson. <laughs> now, I know, and that, that, was, that was a joke. I don't, I don't foresee that Pastor Mark is bowing down in front of his television every single time Clemson scores a touchdown or a field goal while Cheryl's sort of ratting him out. No. <laughs> I, I don't see him offering incense at the idol of Clemson, okay? But dear ones, you probably know some of those out there that their lives are literally a wreck when their team didn't do well the day before. Now, again, I'm from Ohio, and you know Ohio State University is a big football university, And I remember as a boy and even coming back down here to South Carolina where there are a lot of Ohio transplants, they literally were miserable the day after a time when Ohio State lost, especially if that happens against Michigan. I mean, nothing goes well for them. They're, they're, you can tell they're somber. They're not joyful. They're cranky. They're aggravated. They're snappy at people. What, what has their football team become? It has become an idol to them. Their happiness is dependent on how their team did the day before. And as I said before, and I'll say this again, Lloyd-Jones makes a strong assertion that the greatest enemy that confronts us in the spiritual life is the worshiping of idols. The greatest danger confronting us all is not a matter of deeds or actions, but of idolatry. Why? Because it is a heart issue. The other things are simply evidence The actions and the words are evidence of the heart. Now, we're not going to be able to look at all of these passages tonight, but I would have you turn to Exodus chapter 20. Again, Pastor Mark has been here for some time, and and I hope you have not just enjoyed but grown as a result of the studies that we have had in Exodus, and most particularly there in the Ten Commandments But the Ten Commandments touch heavily on this subject of idolatry. And some of which even Pastor Mark referred to this morning in his message on murder. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 and 4, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, we would understand, okay, somebody takes a piece of wood or they they have a uh, stone or some manner of element that they carve out or chisel away in order to make this small image and they set it up in a place of, of importance or a place of adoration. And as we know in the Old Testament, Testament, the people of Israel were surrounded by the nations that did this very thing. They worshiped small images and they cherished these things and said these were their gods. In the New Testament, this was prevalent. The Roman Empire was replete with idolatry. Again, you read in Acts chapter 17 when Paul would go to Mars Hill and it, sh- it tells us there and you can just picture in your mind's eye the streets just lined with Idols. Even one to the unknown God, lest they forget one. We see this as a prevalent problem. But if you go further down here in the Ten Commandments, look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. As Pastor Mark read this morning, it shows us, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And you say, Doug, there's nothing about idolatry there. But oh dear ones, if you turn to the New Testament and look at Colossians 3 or Ephesians, you will see covetousness is idolatry. Paul makes it very clear he does not mince words. And again, as Lloyd-Jones said, anything that moves and rouses and attracts and stimulates me is an idol. Pastor Mark even referred to Romans chapter 7 when Paul read, you're not to covet his heart just exploded realizing how covetous he was. That this man who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin, this man who had a zeal for God, realized he was an idolater. A man as guilty as his forefathers who went into exile into Babylon because they had turned away from the living God. And the more Paul turned, the more he saw, my heart is just racked with idolatry, idolatry. I have an idol here, I have an idol there. Now again, I don't doubt in my mind, Paul did not have these little carved images in his home. He did not carry them in his pocket as he traveled around. But he knew in his heart there were thrones, there were altars set up to these gods, so to speak. And he coveted, he desired, he longed for, he sought satisfaction and fulfillment in things that were not God. And dear ones, I think if we were to take the time and we would be here quite a while with the number that are here tonight... If we were just simply to each of us list one thing that if we were to say was taken away from us that our life would be miserable, we would realize how many idols there are present in this sanctuary tonight, including in the heart of the man preaching today. 
Again, this greatest danger, as Lloyd-Jones says, confronting us is not a matter of deeds or actions, but of idolatry. It's something that John, in looking at, and as he would write this little epistle of 1 John with love, and I don't doubt even with tears coming out of his eyes as he would put those words down, little children, a term of deepest affection. He knew the propensity of his own heart, and he knew, like father, like son, the little children of the faith would battle with this just as much as he did. And he would say to them, keep yourselves from idols. Now, this is almost a statement similar to what we read in Proverbs chapter 4. If you want to turn there, Proverbs 4 verse 23, you probably even have this verse memorized. Proverbs chapter 4, verse number 23. Let me just give a little caveat. For one who was raised spiritually in a church system that greatly reverenced the King James translation, which I don't have a problem with the King James translation, uh, going to the ESV has been very, very hard. Uh, I don't know if you have uh, uh, if you have ever experienced that. I know when I was a young boy, uh, growing up, and as I mentioned in my testimony back in March or in, in uh, May, when my wife and I joined the church, I was raised in the Church of Christ, and the NIV was the translation of choice choice for probably ninety eight percent of uh, the Church of Christ uh, churches out there. It was difficult when I came here to Bob Jones to read the King James translation, and then to do that for so many years, and then come to uh, Grace and read the ESV and try to memorize from that. It's like, wow, I, I'm I'm showing my age at the age of fifty how difficult it is to memorize. Now, again, Proverbs 4, verse 23, I could probably prattle off very easily in, in the uh, King James uh, language, but the ESV, it's just so beautiful when you read it here. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The King, the King James says, out of it are the issues of life. First John sounds just like that when it comes to this area of idolatry. As Solomon would say, keep guard, mount an offensive against these things that would seek to enter into your heart, the inner man, the core of who you are. Just as Solomon would say that, so does John. You set up a guard against idolatry in your soul. Because again, ultimately, idolatry is a sin of the heart. It is not something that we become simply because we see something out there that gets our attention and we must have it. And then when we do get it, if we do get it and set it up, as it were, the thing that grants us satisfaction, that did not happen at the moment when we laid eyes on it. It occurred because of the fact we were born as sinners into a fallen world. And our heart is simply accepting what our heart wants. So we've seen again the sin of idolatry, that it is a sin of the heart. But it's not just good enough to know that idolatry is a sin of the heart. We need to know as well that it comes in many, many forms. Now, dear ones, there is no way on this earth that in a lifetime you're going to know every manifestation of idolatry that there possibly is. 
But we also do know that because idolatry is such a horrid, horrific thing that we must know the forms that this danger does take and as well as the danger it poses. Now, having been in the military, one of the duties, especially in those of you that were in the service, probably remember that during boot camp, you were assigned a duty called fire guard or fire watch duty. Now, this was not the duty that you wanted to have, but everybody had to pull it. What is this? Basically, when everybody else is sound asleep after a grueling day of activity, of screaming, of all manner of mental turmoil, you now have to pull a fire watch duty at the time when everybody else in your barracks are sound asleep. And it's usually for about an hour to two hours max. And I remember the, the one time that I had to do this, it was from 2 to 4 o'clock in the morning. Now, we had just gone to bed at about 11, and we were getting up at 5. What is the greatest danger that somebody on watch is going to have? Now, you might think, well, there's probably not going to be any sort of physical danger. Well, it's called fire watch for a reason. They called it that because back in the history of the military, there had been fires that had broken out in the barracks and people had died as a result of it because they were all sound asleep. But now it's more of a training exercise for people to realize, you know what? You are on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 366 on leap year. And as was wont for drill instructors to do or training instructors to do, as they're called in the Air Force, I'm on fire guard duty and I'm standing literally right by a door. I have to walk around and do this every 30 minutes, have to basically check that nobody's up doing anything they're not supposed to do, making sure there's no problems, checking the, 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 the uh, latrines, checking the barracks where all the guys are sleeping. But for the most part, standing right by the one door that is the entrance into where the barracks are, where 50 guys are, I'm one of those 50 men. And a drill instructor or training instructor arrives while I'm on that guard duty. Now, you didn't just have any training instructor show up. There could be any one of them that could arrive. But we had in, in front of us a small table, no bigger than this pulpit right here. And right, in, right at the back of that table, there was a bulletin board that had instructions as to how we were to deal with anybody that arrived. It did not matter if it was a, a, an airman or a private in the army or a four-star general showing up, we had certain things that we must follow. We could not just open the door for anybody willy-nilly and say, yeah, come on in. Guys did this, and they paid dearly for it when they did. They were what was called recycled, meaning they were put back in training with another group because they just messed up royally by doing what they just did. It's a training exercise. Well, I had a drill instructor that showed up one that was not assigned to us, uh, but one that I had seen his face before, and, and he, he says, I want you to let me in. And I said, sir, I need to see your ID. And he says, I want you to let me in. And I says, sir, I cannot do that. I need to see your ID. And thankfully, he was in somewhat of a merciful, generous spirit. He slapped his ID up. I had to look at it. There was a listing of approved people that were allowed to come in at certain times of the day. If his name had not been on there, I could not, no matter how much he ranted, slammed against that door, whatever, whatever, 
I would have to look him in the eyes and say, you are denied entrance into here. Now, here I am again. I'm just simply somebody in training. This is a guy that had been in the service at least five or six years and could make my life miserable if he wanted to. But he put his name badge up there. I looked at the thing. His name was on there. I opened up the door. He came in. He said, good job, and walked in to check on things. And dear ones, we understand the reality that that is a necessity for those that are in training because they may be put in a situation in real life in a war or whatever zone they may be in on a high alert. They just can't willy-nilly let things go by. They must be on guard. They must also be aware of the dangers that present themselves and how to confront those dangers if they arrive. We don't have men and women that are just thrust into a war zone who have never been trained, who've never been instructed as to these are the dangers you're going to face, this is what you must do in order to oppose them. Or again, as we even see in the scripture, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. Our God has given us in the Bible, just as military men and women are given training manuals, our God has given us instruction as to how to deal with these things as they arise. So it's good for us to understand what are various forms of idolatry in order for us to be on our guard. Why is that? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, some very remarkable words that are not... Um, considered gallant he says flee from idolatry you mean the apostle Paul said run dear ones there are dangers in the life of a child of God we do not dare toy with and idolatry is one of them we don't dare hold it in our hands and admire it and think we're going to be able to set it down and turn our back on it We, we can't do it Just as Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife, knowing the propensity of his own heart, if he remained there, he ran away, Paul says, flee from idolatry. You tuck your tail and you run away. Because as a child of God, you are in a position of great danger to remain in the presence of something that would turn your heart away from the living God. Now, As I said, there's no possible way I could bring out every form of idolatry that there is. But there were three that particularly came to mind as I was studying. They might seem odd to you at first, but I hope along the way you're going to understand where I'm coming from when I I bring these out. The first one is this. And again, I look at the faces of the people here, and, and there's a number of older folks here. There's a number of younger people as well. But there's a word that we don't hear very often anymore, but it's one I think is very appropriate, and that is nostalgia. We see this manifested in a lot of ways where people look at the greatness and goodness of the past, and they live their lives in such a way where it's over and done and it's never coming again. Some, and I picture, say, an old man or an old woman that's sitting in their little rocking chair and thinking back on the days when they were young and, oh, how simple and good those days were. I have a very dear friend of mine. He actually sang in my wife and I's, uh, uh, my wedding back in 1995. 
Uh, his father's been, been uh, home with the Lord now for about seven years, and people would talk to his father about the good old days, and his dad would look them straight in the eye and say, you can have them. This man was a tobacco farmer, and they did everything by hand. There was no mechanical engineering that was going on on their farm. He remembers the days when there was not refrigeration. There was nothing to keep food fresh. Things spoiled very quickly. Life was hard. But we tend to look back on what we call the glory days and think, oh, if we could only be back there then. Well, dear ones, what have we just done? We have robbed the present of its effectiveness, and we are literally looking at the future with hopelessness. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter number 7, and I found this astonishing many years ago as I was studying through this little book that Solomon wrote, he actually speaks to this reality of the idolatry of a nostalgic heart. He says in Ecclesiastes 7.10, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now, what's the opposite of wisdom in this little book? It's foolishness. It's a heart in opposition to God. Again, why were the former days better than these? It's not something that a wise person asks because you know why? Solomon would go on to teach us that the wise heart realizes what we have is given to us by a loving God. And there is a future hope and glory that the people of God can rejoice in over and above that which they enjoyed while they were younger. And as I said, this form of idolatry will drain the usefulness of today and draw attention away from future glory. The people of Israel, as Pastor Jamie has been teaching again in our biblical counseling class, they're a prime example of this living in nostalgia. Remember as they're in the wilderness roaming around, what were they frequently doing as they would grumble? They would say... It was better when we were in Egypt. We had the leeks, we had the onions, we had the fish, we had all of these things. And what happened? They forgot the slavery that they were crying out to God in for over 400 years. Now, some of you know I have a master's degree in history. I am not a person to say that history is not important. It's very important. But if you are spending your life pining for the days that you used to have because of the difficulties of now, you have fallen into a trap of idolatry that has been set for you. The people of Israel fell into this trap and sadly it seems they never got over it until they went into exile and even then they would still moan and complain that the former days were better. We as a church must guard against dwelling on the blessings of the past to the exclusion of the present riches of Christ's grace and the blessed hope of the future. What happens with this type of idolatry, it leads to a life of hopelessness. Oh well, woe is me. 
Nothing good remains. There's nothing good to look forward to. This is one of the reasons why when people, and I know over, over many years of pastoral ministry, I had people would ask me, are we ever going to see revival in this country again? And I would tell them, and I knew what they were, they were coming at, the angle that they were coming at, knowing about the first and the second great awakenings, and some would argue even for a third great awakening, they're looking at physical manifestation of a clear moving of God in the United States of America. And I would say, I don't know if God will ever move in such a way as he did in the past. But I would also tell them that does not mean that you can't experience personal revival on a daily basis from the hand of God. Because so many people are wrapped up in the idea in the church of Christ that the good old days are long gone and really we're just biding our time. We're hunkering down. As the old hymn goes, hold the fort. It's an us against them mentality. We're just bearing these days rather than looking at them as days of blessing from a good God, that I am not denying there is hardship in these days in which we live, but dear ones, there is also a heavenly, loving Savior who is right by our side in them. We are not a people that need to be hopeless. We are of all people the ones that should be praising our God because he is with us in that future as we've been looking at in the book of Revelation for so many weeks, that wonderful future glory that awaits us as his people because God will be there and we will look upon him. Another form of idolatry is one that we don't oftentimes equate with idolatry, just as nostalgia is not one that we equate with idolatry. It's this, acceptance. Now, this, this, this statement of acceptance as idolatry, where I am a person or even a believer that believes my value is revealed in how others receive me or perceive me, this is literally a form of self-worship. In other words, my value comes from what other people believe I am. And that can even take place in the church. And now oftentimes, I remember this as, as a kid, I would hear that, well, that's, that's a teen problem. It's not just a teen problem. I work at a, a plant, and I see this on a regular basis, not just from unsaved people. There are, there are born-again believers that I do rub shoulders with there. And they're from various walks of life, various denominations, but they make claims that they are children of God. They give clear testimony of that. And yet, their acceptance of the people that they work with is paramount oftentimes in their life. That their joy, it is robbed from them when they feel like they're not accepted by the leadership or their coworkers. Now, what this does is it reveals a lack of understanding, or worse, it reveals a lack of satisfaction in our standing with Christ. T turn to Colossians chapter 3, if you would. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Colossians 3, 12 to 13, and again, this is on the heels of what Colossians 3, 
verse 5 said there about covetousness, which is idolatry. It says, again, Paul said, put that off. But he says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. These are statements that Paul makes of the standing or the position that we have in right now, the position we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're chosen ones. We are holy. We are beloved. We're also, as verse number 13 says, we're forgiven by God. How many of you in here have seen the movie Overcomer that the Kendrick brothers put out? Okay, there, there's a number of you have. Look, I, I see that a number of you probably haven't seen that. This is about a young girl who is asthmatic, has a very difficult time breathing. She actually is the only track member of a small Christian high school. Now you think, somebody that is asthmatic and running don't go hand in hand. And I mean, it, this movie sets you up for that. But she's also an unsaved young girl as she starts this school here. She's been bounced back and forth between other schools because of her reputation as a thief, a liar, so on and so forth. Well, partway through the movie, as she has been uh, confronted by the school principal in a very loving situation because the principal, uh, a woman, knows the family, sits down and gives her the gospel. And this young girl is given a little bit of a homework assignment to go home and read through the book of Ephesians. And you see it is literally the turning point of this movie where this young girl starts writing down on a little notebook piece of paper as she has trusted Christ as her Savior, who she is in Christ. Just from Ephesians chapter 1. And I, and I looked back at the little clip of this, and I just wrote down very quickly, and I'll give these to you very quickly, what she found in this. I'm blessed, I'm chosen, I'm adopted, I'm redeemed, I'm forgiven, I'm sealed, I'm loved, I'm saved, I'm God's child. And that's just in one chapter of God's word. Dear ones, when you think about that, acceptance of the world pales. Pastor Mark read from 1 John chapter 3 earlier this morning. At the very beginning of that wonderful chapter of the scripture, it talks about where we are the children of God. That's a position of fixation. And as Paul would say, what shall separate us from the love of God? Peril? Dangers? The sword? principalities, none of these things can remove us as a child of God. We have all blessing in Christ. And you see it again in that little movie clip. You see, and the little girl did such a wonderful job of what the dawning of a realization does. And as I said, I would encourage you, take the time, look at Ephesians 1 and look at who you are in Christ and it will encourage you. You can see on this little girl's face the dawning of the realization. I don't have to do all these wicked things anymore. I don't have to strive after pleasing other people because 
I'm accepted in Christ. And God is my father. A third area, just very, very briefly, is this one of leadership. Now, you might say, how can somebody make leadership an idol? Dear ones, if you go into any sort of bookstore, whether it's a Christian bookstore or, like, say, Barnes & Noble, you go to the self-help section and you're going to find leadership book after leadership book after leadership book. We all can pretty much remember t- a decade ago or more, and even still to this day, we, there, there are books on leadership being churned out, churned out, churned out. And our culture is inundated with pushing people to be the best at what they do and leading others. Now the question is this, it naturally arises, if you are supposed to be the best at what you do, and you have another person say at your workplace or in your home or in society that is a friend of yours and they're to be the best at what they do what naturally arises contention and it's exactly what Jesus Christ spoke to his disciples about when they were all clamoring and when John and James and their mother came asking Jesus to put one on his right hand and one on his left when he appears on his throne in glory. And the other disciples become very upset. Why? That's exactly what they wanted as well. And he says, this is what the Gentiles do. They desire to lord over one another. But what are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be servants. Now, many of us in here have probably heard that phrase, servant leadership. Dear ones, you never see those two words going hand in hand in the scripture anywhere. You don't see it. This is another one of those ways in which the world has seriously influenced the church of God. When is the last time you ever meditated on the fact that the word of God puts more of a prevalence on you being a good follower, not a good leader? Now that, that is contrary to anything I've ever heard before. Because you know what? Being a follower runs counter to our human nature in its fallen state. But what did Jesus do when we read there in John chapter 13? He put aside those garments, wrapped himself in a towel, took that water basin, and did what? He washed the feet of 12 men and said, if I, your Lord and Master, have done this to you, you need to do it to one another. Leadership has become such a thing that we idolize and we almost push this upon our kids. We push this on people to be the best that they can be. And there is nothing wrong with telling our children we serve the Lord Christ and with the heart we need to do that wholly for him. But what if your God has called your child to be somebody that is the best at following I remember years ago, and I know my, my time is almost gone, pastor friend of mine out in California told his little boy, they nicknamed him Buddy. He was uh, Ronald Victor Smith the fourth, if I remember correctly, but they nicknamed him Buddy. His little boy, every day, when that trash truck would show up once a week, every day that happened, 
that little boy would hear that truck come to the front of their house and he would run right to their big picture window and just stare mesmerized at those garbage guys and what they did. And he would tell his father over and over, that's what I want to do. Five years old. And you say, okay, there's not really many people out there that aspire to be a garbage man. But you know what that man in wisdom did with his boy? He didn't say, son, no, that's, too, that's below you. You're, you're going to be something far better than that. He went on to become a police officer, a state trooper in Texas. But when he had that conversation with his son in his lap, he told him, if that is what God has called you to do, you be the best garbage collector that you can be for the Lord. Dear ones, that's what we need to hear. Because we set ourselves up for failure when we do not achieve what society, and yes, sadly, sometimes the church has put on us to think we have to be in a position of greatness for our lives to matter, not so. What is it that Christ says to his disciples when they're going to stand before the Lord one day? They want to hear, well done, good and faithful leader. Mm -mm. Good and faithful servant. Now, the third and final thing that I want to bring to you tonight, and as I said, I'm going to have to go through this very quickly. There is the cure of idolatry that we read of in 1 John 5.20. If you want to turn there, this will be the last passage again that we look at tonight. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Notice there three times in one verse the word true. It's in juxtaposition of what he says, keep yourselves from idols. He is true. He is true. He is true. Idols are not. We see that evidence is presented that we know and we have been given an understanding. This evidence is presented and imparted to us. <clears throat> This refers by extension to John's very gospel. Why did he write the gospel according to John? So that we may believe that he is the son of God. And believing in his name we have eternal life. The first cure to the sin of idolatry is exposure to the truth. <clears throat> it's always the first step toward avoiding sin and error. Secondly, we see in that that there is a relationship that is established. We know him. These are the same words in John 17, verse 3. That knowing him, we have eternal life. There's a relationship that is established there. John Piper famously said many years ago that God himself is the gospel. Dear ones, the gospel is wonderful because we know we have eternal life, but that is not why we rejoice. We rejoice because God has given himself to us. That is the gospel. And we see a position that is fixed, as I said moments ago, we are in him. Here John tells us this is an eternal place that cannot be taken away and we cannot remove ourselves from. We are children of God. So what are some practical things that you can take away from this? 
and I, I just think about this as a Christian brother in the Lord, I give these to you. Meditate much on the attributes of God in order to relate to him. This is how trust and dependence are built. When you meditate much on your God, your heart is going to draw to him, not be pushed away from him. Expose yourself frequently to good writings, to messages, to fellowship with other believers to fuel your love for God. Dear ones, we think, and we had what we call a fellowship meal today. But when you look at the word fellowship in the scripture, it's not just talking about eating fried chicken and baked beans. Fellowship is where God's people gathered together to talk about the goodness of God in their lives with one another. And it fueled their love for him and for one another. And this will actually grow your passion in holiness. Devote yourself to consistently reading your Bible so you hear from God regularly. Now, again, I'm not telling you anything that you have not heard before, but dear ones, we are so prone to forget. And I'm on good ground when I borrow from 2 Peter chapter number 1, where Peter, as he's about ready to die, says, I'm going to remind you of things that you already know. We don't like being reminded of things. And I know this. <clears throat> Remember as a kid hearing my father repeat himself so oftentimes I just say, Dad, I've heard this before, but he knew it was good for me. And dear ones, God our Father does this to us as well. When if you think you've come up with or heard or read a novel idea, that ought to be a dire warning that goes off in your mind. This is probably not good. Because God takes his word and repeats it over. And over and over because we've not learned our lesson oftentimes. And finally, there's a fourth practical use, and this is one that will be coming up soon in the life of our church. Partake of the Lord's Supper to remind yourself of Christ's love for you. There is no idol in this world that has ever laid down its life for you. And I love this. I heard uh, Sinclair Ferguson many years ago in a conference message that I listened to online when I was pastoring in Maine. He made this statement. The Puritans used to call, and those that were in a Sunday school class, actually the first Sunday school class that I taught here, um, I said this. Ferguson made the statement, the Puritans used to call the Lord's table the kiss of Christ. Why? It, was, it is the visible reminder of his love for us, his people. Now, people, you're going to know that I love my wife by the way I treat her, by how you see me interact with her. But what is the most intimate portrayal of my love for her? It's the kiss. And that table is Christ's kiss for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What do we remember? He loved us and he died for us. No idol has done that. And as our dear Savior would want us to know that his love continues. And may I say it, folks, these simple things of meditating on God, devoting ourselves to regularly reading his word so we know what he has to say to us, 
taking the time to fellowship with his children and partaking of that wonderful representation of the Lord's Supper of his death and his coming again are potent medicines against the sin of idolatry in the life of God's people. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that your people have come tonight to hear from you. And we praise you that you are a God that has not left us in our sin, but you have given us your Savior, our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, to deal with what was the most potent problem of all, and that is we are a people that have the heart issue of idolatry. Our God, as your people here tonight in Grace Baptist Church, we pray through your Holy Spirit, work in us day by day to be weaned from the idols of our heart and to long more for the living God. To this end, our God, we cry out to you in faith, asking for mercy to work in us as only you as sovereign God can do. We pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Sing Psalm 16 as a response together. Please stand.